Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Wrapping up our deep dive into slavery reparations is Professor Manisha Sheena, Draper Chair in American History at University of Connecticut. Professor Shinna walks us through the complicated starts and stops that make up America's debate about slavery reparations. Here's our talk from May 27th, 2021. Manisha Sinha, the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut. Excellent, and we're going to be discussing um, your essay in the Wall Street Journal, the long history of American slavery reparations. So, if you could kind of give us an give us an over, give us an overview, an overview to accomplish with this essay, and maybe a little bit of how it was received. Mm-hmm. Well, I became interested in the issue of reparations not because of the modern movement towards reparations. Um, I would I think which is how most people hear about it. Uh, I became interested in it because I'm a 19th century historian of slavery abolition and the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I was writing this big book on abolition, which was published in 2016, uh, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Um, And increasingly, I found so many abolitionists, uh, both black and white, talk about reparations. They didn't call it that. They called it compensation. Uh, to enslave people for um, you know centuries of um, unpaid labor, um, and they really opposed compensation to slaveholders, which is what was being talked about then by other people um, at the end of slavery. Uh, you know, the British gave slaveholders a lot of money for their quote loss of property, and abolitionists um, tended to oppose that. They they saw that as a travesty. So I became increasingly interested in abolitionists who were talking about compensation, people like Garrison, others who got involved in the land reform movement like Garrett Smith, who actually distributed land um, to African-Americans so that they could vote in, in New York because they had to meet a property holding qualification in order to vote, but white men did not. Um, so there was this debate, this talk about uh, compensating enslaved people that went on before the Civil War. Uh, And during the Civil War, it kind of enters into mainstream politics with uh, enslaved people asking for land. Um, And with Sherman's famous field order number 15 during the Civil War uh, that did redistribute land uh, to enslaved people in low country, South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, And this debate goes on during Reconstruction. I'm currently writing a book on Reconstruction. And this is a big issue. It's not, you know, people think, oh, this is something politically correct. We've just dreamed up of this issue. But actually, it's been going on for some time. And its real historical origins uh, was in the time period of both slavery and abolition, uh, and then in the immediate aftermath of slavery uh, in the South. Yeah, that's excellent. And I, I think that I would like to touch, um, in the article you mentioned in 1783, um, Belinda Sutton 
became the first uh, woman to win reparations. And um, could you maybe speak a little bit about how that happened and what, what Belinda Sutton had to do to do that? Yes, so Belinda Sutton was uh, an African-American woman. Uh, she was owned by the Suttons. Uh, her petition, Belinda's famous uh, petition that historians uh, have, you know, in the recent past discovered, um, show that she uh, demanded, um, you know, compensation for years of labor. And she is uh, what they called in those days a superannuated slave, meaning somebody who is elderly, her, her years of work and labor were behind her. Uh, in a way, she was asking for a pension, virtually what, what we would call today a pension. Uh, but her claims were um, well received, uh, not only because she'd never been compensated for her labor, because she had been enslaved. Uh, and then Massachusetts had, of course, gotten rid of slavery by that time in the 1780s. Um, and also because her master, her erstwhile master, was a loyalist. Uh, and so the Massachusetts uh, General Court, which is what was the name of the state legislature, um, looked upon her petition favorably, uh, but they were rather miserly. Uh, they didn't give her a huge amount, uh, but they did give her something. So this, you could say, was the was the first uh, demand for um, years of uncompensated labor under slavery, and it came from an enslaved Black woman. Yeah, I found that very interesting that the, the owner was a, a Tory loyalist, and that's one of the reasons why they, they, they didn't like him, so they, they went ahead and did that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Sherman Field Order, um, because this happened during the war, correct? This was something that he did as he's doing his famous march through the South, right? We could talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Um, so. You know, when Sherman issued his field order number 15, he just didn't issue it out of the blue. Um, William Sherman was not an abolitionist. He was an adept general, Union Army general, uh, but he was not somebody who had great anti-slavery beliefs or believed in the abolitionist cause. In fact, he was rather conservative on the question of race. Uh, but as a general, he had to deal with military logistics and he had to deal with literally armies of enslaved people who were fleeing for freedom to the Union Army following him. And in a way, sort of bogging him down in his famous march to the sea um, across the South to break uh, the backbone of the Confederacy in 1865. Uh, by the time he reaches Savannah, Georgia, he with uh, Secretary of War, uh, Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, meet with black leaders uh, from that city. Uh, and he's thinking of a way to, to deal with this problem, what, what he sees as a problem of uh, contraband of freed people following his army. And indeed the Union Army had developed quote, contraband camps, which we call more now refugee camps because these enslaved people were literally refugees from war. Um, and they asked these African-American leaders, many of them are prominent ministers. One of them, interestingly, was named Garrison Frazier, who did a lot of the talking and was named actually after abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. 
um, a fact that is not widely known. Um, so Garrison Fraser says, you know, we, we just want economic independence. What we don't want is to have to labor for our former owners to be reduced to doing that kind of menial servile labor for the benefit of someone else, which is what they had done in all the years of slavery. So their concept of freedom included not just full citizenship rights and opportunity for education and social mobility, but also land, economic independence and autonomy. And this is an idea that is actually very central to American notions of citizenship and uh, of uh, being a good citizen of the Republic. Because old ideas of American Republicanism said that you were the most virtuous citizen if you were an independent citizen, somebody who was not too wealthy, but also not somebody who was dependent on someone else, that you could make the best judgment, political judgment, if you're an independent citizen. Um, and this became a, a way for many, you know, indentured uh, servants in the colonial era, they would get a little bit of a, they would get freedom dues, they would get, um, you know, sometimes uh, tools, uh, clothes, a new pair of clothes, etc., cetera, uh, and sometimes land. And these were indentured servants who were, you know, indentured only for a short uh, period of years, even though sometimes their masters tried to in increase their terms of servitude. Um, but for enslaved people to demand this was nothing unusual. It's an old custom. It's an old English custom that they were going back to. But at that time, um, you know, in the United States, uh, people had forgotten that. They had forgotten that there were other systems of unfree labor that had existed and that other people had received compensation uh, for their labor. Instead, they were simply, you know, thinking about the 19th century, thinking sometimes more about slaveholders uh, than enslaved people. Um, so yes, that was um, the reason why Sherman issued that field order number 15, uh, giving enslaved people 40 acres of land and a mule from the Union Army uh, to get them started off in those farms. And that's where you get the famous slogan, 40 acres and a mule. Uh, and it, it sort of spread like wildfire amongst enslaved people that maybe uh, the land would be redistributed to them uh, and then maybe their masters, the sort of grand uh, plantation owners would be punished for their treason uh, and would lose ownership of that land. Uh, a lot of land was confiscated during the war by the Lincoln administration uh, and through the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, mainly because of non-payment of taxes. Uh, and sometimes um, agents of the Freedmen's Bureau um, especially those who had anti-slavery sympathies would settle enslaved people uh, or formerly enslaved people on those lands. So there were many such schemes that were, you know, ripe uh, for the taking during the Civil War. Unfortunately, uh, Lincoln was assassinated and in his place, you got a man uh, who was completely unsympathetic uh, to black freedom claims, uh, to black claims for equality, for political rights and for economic autonomy. And one of the first things he does is actually to return all that land uh, to the former owners. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think Andrew Johnson is widely seen as uh, one of the worst presidents in, in the history of the United States. So, so these plans were nipped in the bud. 
uh, and that was unfortunate. Um, and then once uh, Republicans in Congress start opposing Johnson, um, because slaveholders are coming back into power and trying to reduce black people to as close a state of slavery as possible. Uh, once they start articulating their plans for reconstruction, there's again a momentum amongst radicals uh, like Thaddeus Stevens, like George Julian, uh, saying let's redistribute land. But unfortunately, they can't get the moderates uh, and certainly not the conservatives in their party to come on board. Uh, they have a consensus for black political rights, but they don't for uh, land redistribution. Uh, and that was one of the tragedies of reconstruction. Yeah, and it seems to be that this debate about, or not, I guess it's not debate, but these, there were potential starts and stops toward reparations that just constantly got kind of, as you said, nipped in the bud, stopped or, or rolled back. So prior or after Reconstruction, what happens to the reparation movement as far as like? So the people, sorry, uh, the people who carry the torch for the reparations movement after the overthrow of Reconstruction are of course formerly enslaved people, uh, African-Americans themselves. Uh, and women again, like Belinda take the lead here. Um, you have uh, organizations that uh, one pensions for enslaved people. Um, after all, there's a huge pension scheme that is put into place for former Union Army soldiers. And many times Black Union Army soldiers um, are either excluded or have to fight to get those pensions. Um, but there is a real momentum amongst African-Americans uh, and they create uh, these organizations of former slaves uh, demanding pension. Um, uh, unfortunately, they're not successful. Uh, and sometimes uh, they are accused of fraud. Uh, you know, remember that they are fighting in the most dismal circumstances at this time. Not only is the promise of some kind of compensation for years of unpaid labor um, sort of out of the door, but not the system that you have in the South is a system, you know, the Jim Crow system, you have racial segregation, a racist terror at lynching, sharecropping, debt peonage. So you have another system of racial oppression being put into place rather than having reparations. Yeah, that was more to do with the kind of maintaining the status quo for the South than it was to stop reparations, correct? Yes, and not just status quo, it's like literally going back in time because what you had during reconstruction was at least an attempt to create black male citizenship uh, and to form interracial democracies in the South. What you have in the South is an overthrow of that project and overthrow not just of federal laws, but constitutional amendments. You know, the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, you have convict lease labor, you have new forms of servitude uh, in the South. Uh, and that's why the issue of reparations becomes even more complicated. Reparations first for slavery, and then for another hundred years of racial terror and of uh, new forms of servitude. Um, you have the rise of convict lease labor, of incarceration of black people, um, at levels that were, you know, that many historians call this like worse than slavery or slavery by another name. 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to look at that period also, uh, because when one looks at the generational ways in which African-Americans have been denied equality or the opportunity to accumulate uh, income and wealth, uh, you have to look at that history, that sorry and long and dismal history um, of racist oppression in this country uh, and uh, primarily in the South uh, before the great migrations, of course, over 90% of the population, um, uh, black population lived in the South. Um, this is also the time when black people sort of turned then towards self-help and, and try to create, you know, migrate West, create their own towns, create their own businesses. And that too uh, ends up at, uh, you know, receiving racist black backlash. We are talking a lot this year about the Tulsa racial massacre uh, that took place in 1921 because it's the centennial of it. But, but think of that, uh, the so-called Black Wall Street, all those businesses, all those lives completely upended, people killed, businesses burned. Um, they put in insurance claims. They didn't even get insurance for uh, this sort of massive pogrom against them. Uh, and Tulsa and you know some others are some spectacular examples, but this happened regularly. Uh, and it happened with the complicity of the state. That's when you think of questions of reparations, for instance, in the German case and the continuing reparations to victims and their descendants uh, from the Holocaust and then to the state of Israel. When the state is complicit, you know, either in terms of active involvement of law enforcement, uh, but also turning a blind eye to atrocities and crimes, uh, then the state is liable. Uh, and certainly, you know, um, we could do this at various levels. We could do it at the level of towns and local governments, as in Tulsa, in the level of states. Um, certainly most of the Southern states would owe enormous reparations um, to their black populations and to the national level uh, for simply not enforcing the rule of the law uh, as far as black citizens were concerned. Yeah, that's right. And then um, there have been some successful, um, especially I'm thinking of, you mentioned in your article, Georgetown and Virginia Theological College, uh, seminary, sorry, um, who have, kind of set up reparation programs or systems to kind of redress their, um, their history with slavery. So maybe you could talk about kind of how that, um, yeah. that's worked out. Yeah. Uh, so it, what's been interesting is to see private entities, uh, universities and corporations, less corporations because we know we have dug up their past, many of these insurance companies like Aetna, et cetera, and their complicity uh, with upholding slavery, uh, but they haven't done much soul searching or offered any compensation to anyone. I don't even think they've um, issued verbal apologies because they don't want to be legally liable. What's interesting is to see this debate go on in universities. Uh, and it makes sense that it would, because that's where, the histories being uncovered, histories of slavery and racial oppression, that's where we work uh, and where we can see the connections uh, between um, the sort of long history uh, of racial oppression to systemic inequalities 
uh, for people of African descent that exist in the United States even today. Uh, so it makes sense that much of this investigation is taking place in universities by historians uh, and sometimes by descendants of people who have been wronged uh, and that these universities have then taken action. Uh, what's interesting for me to note in terms of Georgetown and the Virginia Theological Seminary is that these are religious institutions where Georgetown is a Jesuit institution. Um, and, and, and clearly, you know, as religious institutions, uh, they seem to understand uh, the morality of these issues the way the abolitionists did, uh, perhaps better than other uh, institutions. Um, at least they take their religion uh, seriously enough, they take the, the moral calling seriously enough uh, to address this. So it's interesting for me to see many of these more liberal religious institutions um, take the first step. I haven't seen any of the really rich universities um, uh, like Harvard, like Yale or Princeton do anything except to research their own history. Uh, but uh, Georgetown has a systemic plan because they were, it was one incident of a massive sale of enslaved people owned by the university uh, and sent to New Orleans, to Louisiana, and they were able to trace the descendants of those uh, enslaved people who were sold down south and make direct reparations to them. So it's a very specific case. So that helps too. Um, you know, whether that is sufficient to offer them admissions or education at the university, which is what they feel they can do, uh, is another matter. Um, but yes. Okay, well, I think we can wrap up with this idea of the, you wrap your article up with, um, Kind of a truth and reconciliation commission model and um, that's one thing that i was really fascinated with when i learned about it in south africa and i wonder if um, how you would see that even happening here especially when the lost cause narrative of the south is still so prevalent and i mean we've seen it you know unfortunately the last four years kind of really come to the forefront so if you could maybe we'll kind of wrap it all up with that Absolutely. So, you know, the reason why I recommend a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the United States is because I think most ordinary Americans have never grappled with the history of slavery uh, and the history of Jim Crow and disenfranchisement and lynching and racial terror in this country. Uh, and if you look at the period when Confederate monuments were put up, in this country and when the lost cause mythology of the South uh, came to dominate both popular and academic understandings of slavery, um, you see this happening precisely at this period with the overthrow of Reconstruction. Uh, there were people who contested it. There were African-Americans, descendants of abolitionists, racial liberals, progressives, uh, but they were in the minority. The mainstream was, you know, from birth of a nation to the emergence of the second Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s when they marched down the streets of Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, when you had these uh, really ugly Confederate monuments and that monumental style and heroic style being put up. 
Uh, and the people today who still champion those values of racism and white supremacy uh, go naturally back to these Confederate monuments because that's precisely what they stand for. They stand for slavery, they stand for white supremacy, they, they, they stand for ideas that became unpopular in the United States uh, with the rise of Nazism and its defeat. But it has now resurged um, in a political movement, in a crude political movement, uh, where people are not just afraid to wave the Confederate battle flag, um, but that they are also using Nazi symbols and, and Nazi ideas. Uh, so I really think this is more than a question of black versus white or white versus black. It's really a question of uh, human rights and decent human beings uh, against people who appeal to the worst uh, in our natures. And um, that's why I think a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a good starting point. The very fact that many of our historical research on issues of slavery, much of it which you know is a product of debate and contestation between scholars, is being attacked politically. Uh, you know, these are the same people who bemoan political correctness, but for a long time they taught mythic and ahistorical and sometimes blatantly wrong history just factually wrong history. Uh, and these are the people who want to undo academic freedom, who want to undo uh, research on history. It's a lot, it's very similar to the way they attacked scientists over the issue of climate change. It's politically motivated. Uh, there is no attempt to stand up for any idea of truth. Um, and you know, dissent is the highest form of patriotism in a, in a democracy. Uh, and I think most of these people don't have a basic understanding, not just of uh, the issues of slavery and racial oppression. They don't have an understanding of American republicanism and democracy. They don't know that Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, the most beloved American president, began his career by opposing the war against Mexico as a land grab for slavery. You know, you think of anti-war people and they're seen as unpatriotic. Well, what do you make of that? Uh, and, and those are the kinds of things and facts that our students should be exposed to, to be good citizens. Um, this is true patriotism. You would be able to uphold the ideals of American republicanism much better if you were acquainted with the history, with the controversy over slavery, with the ways in which abolition and emancipation came about. Um, and I think this is a dire necessity today for the fate of American democracy. Uh, when, um, you know, luckily not a majority, but when a significant minority of American citizens still espouse uh, these racist ideas, uh, and because um, our political system is gerrymandered to favor this minority from the South, from unpopulated areas in the West, um, the, their representatives, uh, they openly espouse these ideas. So I think it really is a matter of education. Um, and you can see this happening in all these laws that are being passed by uh, the no longer party of Lincoln, uh, but the party of the neo-Confederacy uh, in the South, um, in the West, in some places where Republicans are in control, where they want to, in a very Orwellian way, 
mandate what can be taught and what can't be taught. Um, you know, today they're demonizing critical race theory. Well, 50 years ago, they demonized secular humanism, which is after all America's heritage, the heritage of the enlightenment, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very tragic to see these people claim the mantle of uh, patriotism. It's really jingoism of the worst kind. It's what the fascists and the Nazis did to manipulate history, to tell half truths in order to advance a pernicious political agenda. That's why I think the first step, and this is not the last step, but the first step is really one of education, of having uh, something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that South Africa had to deal with its own, sorry, history of apartheid. Uh, we haven't dealt with the history of Southern apartheid in this country, what we called Jim Crow, uh, leave alone, um, you know, the history of slavery and its long afterlives. Um, so I think that is important, especially now that we have seen a concerted backlash against the civil rights movement a concerted attempt to undo voting rights. Um, this is exactly what happened during Reconstruction when Southerners through a program of voter intimidation and suppression and through sheer racist terror uh, undid Reconstruction in the 19th century. They did the same with the second Reconstruction of democracy. Uh, we saw that concerted attempt politically um, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. We are still living with that legacy and those same contestations over citizenship and democracy. Uh, and this is where I think we need that kind of commission where people can come with open minds uh, and, and talk about our history. And, and I do this all the time in my classroom. Not every student that walks into my big Civil War lecture course um, is necessarily identified with liberal or progressive causes. Uh, they are just ordinary students uh, who uh, want to learn uh, and whose ideas about certain things may actually be quite different than mine politically, but they are open to learning. And, and that's what's important. It's important to create that space. Um, and that's why I think the attacks on the 1619 Project, which was a journalistic attempt to popularize uh, the histories of slavery uh, in this country and the long histories of, of racism uh, is unfortunate. Uh, you know, I may not agree with everything they have to say, um, but I think it's a very worthy attempt uh, and I would defend it uh, rather than attack it. Uh, I would say that in fact, most Americans uh, should engage those ideas. Uh, and one way to engage it would be through a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, where people don't come with hard bound ideas right off. And, and then maybe we can get a debate about reparations going. You can't talk about policy without educating people on this. And, and, you know, again, as a historian of abolition, I see this. I mean, abolitionists struggled from being this despised minority for decades before they were able to get an anti-slavery Republican Party uh, and Lincoln elected. Now, agreed, the South kind of seceded when that happened. Uh, and we had the Civil War, et cetera, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But, but it takes long years of agitation, of education, um, to, to get people uh, to recognize something that is staring them right in the face.
Thanks for listening to Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.